Fighting fire with Texans. Crews from the Lone Star State travel west to help Californians battling historic blazes on several fronts. What they're facing today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group. Software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Some believe it could be a watershed moment in the so-called drug war and a cultural moment, too, as the drug kingpin known as El Chapo heads to trial. Also, are citizen militias really headed to the border to meet a migrant caravan? PolitiFact checks it out. And spoiler alert, it won't be the Amarillo jerky after all. The Panhandle City picks a name for its minor league ball club, and not everyone's a fan. The Texas Standard gets swinging right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this November 14th. Thanks for spending a bit of your Wednesday with us. I'm David Brown. Amarillo has finally answered the question minor league ball fans have been asking for months. And no, they will not be called the Amarillo Jerky. What they did settle on is raising eyebrows and Perhaps more than a few hackles in the panhandle. you want to stick around for our story a little later in the hour. Despite the on-again, off-again rivalry between the Lone Star State and California, a crisis in the Golden State has hundreds of Texans heading westward. Governor Abbott has deployed at least 200 firefighters and some 50 types of specialized fire vehicles to the west coast as historic wildfires sweep parts of northern and southern California. In the so-called campfire in California's northern Butte County, there are 48 confirmed fatalities, making that the deadliest wildfire in that state's history. 7,600 homes lost. In L.A. and Ventura County, the Woolsey and Hill fires are blamed for two fatalities. 435 structures burned, 57,000 others in danger. Carrie Hines is a wildland and urban interface specialist with the Texas A&M Forest Service. Welcome to The Standard. Thank you for having me. Texas A&M Forest Service, as I understand it, is overseeing the deployment of, uh, of crews from nearly 50 fire departments from across Texas. What exactly will they be doing and are they all going to the same place? They are not all going to the same place. Uh, we have firefighters from almost 50 fire departments between TIFMIS and Texas A&M Forest Service Resources. And uh, the plan is for them to go to three different fires in um, three different counties, the um, Ventura County, Butte County, and Los Angeles County. They will get orders uh, when they arrive. Okay. And uh, what about the challenges they face? Any in particular that you were concerned about? I mean, you know, when you have uh, experience experienced fire crews, one might think that they've seen it all, but these fires seem different somehow. So when you take Texas firefighters and send them to California, uh, they know that it's going to be a little bit different, just as when you take California firefighters and bring them to Texas. The weather behaves a little bit differently. The Santa Ana winds, of course, um, the topography is very different than it is here in Texas, as well as the vegetation. Um, so they're dealing with plants that will behave very differently when they burn. You say behave differently. Uh, do, is there any reason to believe that these fires might be more dangerous than what Texas firefighters have encountered uh, uh, here in Texas? Maybe not more dangerous, but just different than what their experience is. So um, we always say we're going to train for what we 
need to experience in the field. And when we do that in Texas, it means doing prescribed burning, doing fuels projects, training with different departments. Um, And the conditions they're going to see in California are just going to be a little bit different. So they're going to have to be learning as they go um, and and getting help from the local resources. From your experience and based on what you've learned about uh, these fires, I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with the Santa Ana winds, and that's kind of a, a an annual event that seems to spark wildfires uh, or at least fuel them uh, this time of year, every year. Uh, is there any reason to believe that something else is going on that uh, is not an annual event or that there is some something, as, as the California governor has, has uh, uh, suggested, something happening with the climate that's causing this particular uh, spate of wildfires? Well, they have, of course, been going through a very long drought. So they have been experiencing, uh, on average, much higher temperatures over the last few years, as well as much less precipitation on an annual basis. So when you combine that, very hot days, very low precipitation with high wind days, and then you put humans into the mix, both our structures and the fact that humans cause the most wildfires, um, and you just has a, have a recipe for a bad wildfire day. Well, I think that a lot of our listeners are wondering, well, if this could happen in California, what are the dangers here in Texas? I mean, we, you know, we've seen some large wildfires in particular in the panhandle in recent memory. Yes, and we do have a wildfire danger throughout the year, depending on where you live in Texas. So whether that's East Texas, the Panhandle, Central Texas, or the Valley out to West Texas, depending on what our weather is doing, depending on uh, if we've been in a drought or not, um, how close you are to vegetation that's overgrown, we absolutely do experience high wildfire danger days. So so how would you compare the dangers here in Texas? I mean, uh, is this a warning for us in some way? I think anytime we have a large wildfire in the United States, people tend to think more about it. So for us at the Texas A&M Forest Service, this is our chance to tell people we do have a choice whether or not we can take action on our own property to lower the risk of wildfire negatively impacting our homes and our families and our community. There are absolutely things that people can do uh, to reduce their chance of, of property loss during a wildfire. And so anytime we can get that message across, that's what we're trying to do. Carrie Hines is Wyland and Urban Interface Specialist with the Texas A&M Forest Service, which is overseeing the deployment of almost 50 fire departments from across Texas to California. Carrie, thanks again. Thank you. In some places, he's considered a figure of mythical proportions, the subject of Mexican ballads. Among U.S. prosecutors, he's considered a deadly international drug kingpin who amassed a virtual army of his own south of our border, murdering rivals and destabilizing governments. But as trial begins in New York for the man known as El Chapo, amid unprecedented security, we appear to be entering both a kind of cultural moment not seen since the days of Pablo Escobar and perhaps a watershed moment as well for the U.S. war on drugs. Joining us now, Nathan Jones, assistant professor at Sam Houston State University's College of Criminal Justice and non-resident scholar in drug policy and Mexico studies at Rice University's Baker Institute. Nathan, welcome back to The Standard. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Chapo's role in drug trafficking, especially as it relates to Texas. Uh, A little bit of a recap, perhaps? 
So Chapo Guzman, he goes back all the way to the days of the 1980s Guadalajara cartel. He was involved uh, in a shooting in the airport in Guadalajara. He was actually purported to be the target. The Tijuana cartel or the Adriano Felix organization was uh, targeting him. He narrowly escaped, but the Archbishop of Guadalajara uh, was killed in that assassination attempt. Uh, Chapo Guzman escaped down to Guatemala. He was arrested there, and he went to maximum security federal prison in Mexico. And the really interesting thing about this is he had no problem building his drug empire from within this prison. Mm. And by about 2001, he was able to escape and he becomes the head, well, he'd already been, but he becomes the head of the Sinaloa Drug Cartel Federation, which becomes the largest drug trafficking uh, federation in the world. Wow. Um, and that's how he kind of takes on this mythical proportion. You know, I, I know that uh, El Chapo faced indictments in lots of jurisdictions, including here mm. in Texas, as I understand. Yes. So what's he doing all the way up in Brooklyn? Well, there's a lot of speculation. It could be that the prosecutors thought that's where they had the best case, or it could be that's where they thought they had the best security. Given his propensity for escape, and there's been two uh, major escapes, highly sophisticated. One, the most recent one involved uh, a maximum security prison and a mile-long tunnel and engineers that had to be sent off to Europe to learn how to tunnel and deal with water. They pro Likely, the U.S. government thought, this is the place where we can secure him the best. That jail uh, in uh, New York, in Brooklyn, is known for being as secure as, or the conditions is being similar to like Guantanamo Bay. There wow. have actually been individuals interviewed who have been in both. So this likely the security was was a major factor in the decision to prosecute there. But but why is the U.S. doing this and not Mexico? We're far from the epicenter of the Sinaloa cartel. Well, uh, drug trafficking is an international crime. It affects the United States insofar as the drugs end up in the United States. Uh, and therefore, there's uh, because of the large consumer market here in the United States. So it really is a transnational crime. I think the Mexican government immediately saw that after he'd escaped for the second time, that extradition was going to be the way that they were going to go uh, in terms of getting him into the United States in terms of security. But has his capture and, and ultimately extradition had any effect on the organized crime landscape? Or I mean, we, we hear a lot about uh, the drug cartel still, uh, still uh, in, in power in Mexico. Well, it's certainly been a disrupting factor, uh, and this is the, the thing about the kingpin strategy. It certainly disrupts these organizations. Nonetheless, the Sinaloa cartel is still considered, and, and it's better thought of as a federation of traffickers, as other scholars point out, uh, is still considered the most powerful uh, or one of the most powerful. But his uh, Chapo's uh, uh, extradition allowed a change in the trafficking corridors, and it allowed a new cartel, the Cartel de Jalisco Nueva Generación, to move into other areas throughout Mexico. And some consider it now the most powerful drug trafficking organization in Mexico. So there's a debate as to, to which group is the most important. And wherever it's going, it's having open warfare, open conflict with other cartels, and that's driving violence up. So uh, the effect of, of Chapo Guzman's extradition and removal from the Mexican drug trafficking system has definitely had an effect, um, but there's a debate as to what, what the nature of that effect is. Drugs are still flowing, absolutely. Uh, the cartels are uh, various drug trafficking organizations are still functioning, uh, and violence is up. 
Nathan Jones will be following this trial. He's assistant professor at Sam Houston State's College of Criminal Justice. Professor, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. In for social media editor Wells Dunbar, Eric Austin, managing editor at KERA News, North Texas. Good to talk with you again, uh, Eric. And uh, what are Texans talking about? Yeah, Texans are talking about all the firefighters heading to California, which you talked about earlier in the Mm -hmm. show. I've been checking out Texas fire departments on Twitter, and they've been updating their audiences with um, updates on where their fire vehicles are. Uh, For example, Fort Worth Fire Department, they're on Twitter at Fort Worth Fire, um, have been taking pictures as their firefighters cross state lines. So when they approach the Arizona border and then uh, finally the California border. So some nice pictures that I've been tweeting out at Texas Standard, if you want to follow along. Brush Mm -hmm. 22 and Task Force 9, part of the crew there. And also in Baytown, which is near Houston, they've also been making uh, their voyage westward. They posted a video of caravan of fire vehicles outside the Phoenix area. And um, apparently they drove through some snow flurries as well. And they are now in California as well. Uh, Speaking of snow flurries, it is very cold out there across Texas. And um, let me see here. uh, Austin, in your your, uh, neck of the woods, very cold this morning, 24 degrees, a new record low, David. Yeah, don't, let's not talk about that. Uh, Yeah, let me, uh, let me tell you. If you want to keep up with all the stuff that's happening with the firefighters, uh, check out uh, the hashtag Texas Standard on Twitter. Join the conversation on Facebook. Eric Austin, back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horn frogs strive to be a force for the greater good. Like Dr. Kyle Walker, who uses data mapping and open source software to help organizations serve at-risk communities. TCU, lead on. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. That earlier-than-usual cold wave sweeping Texas has lots of folks thinking about the homeless, which I suppose in its own way is rather sad given that the challenges facing the homeless are far from seasonal. According to the National Center for Homeless Education, Texas is home to about 10% of the country's homeless youth, and one recent study suggests that children who are homeless are at a much higher risk of dropping out of school, entering the juvenile court system, becoming a victim of human trafficking, and developing mental health issues. Well, in Dallas, some folks are trying to address those dangers. Yesterday, the public got a look at the first phase of a new homeless center for teens and young adults aged 14 to 21. It's a partnership between Dallas ISD and several other groups. KERA Stella Chavez went to see for herself how this new center could make a difference. At least 4,000 students in Dallas ISD are considered homeless. Many can't afford housing or they can't go home because of family problems. Some live on the streets. Others move around from place to place. The first phase of the Fannie C. Harris Youth Center near Fair Park will offer something many of these young people haven't had, a regular place to go. The school district is partnering with City Square and Promise House. George Baldor is founder of After Eight to Educate, one of the groups leading the project. He says meeting the needs of these young people is crucial. They're making the effort to, you know, while living under a bridge or in a car, and they're washing up at the restrooms at the gas stations. Um, They're facing all kinds of obstacles, you know, just for nutrition and for basic needs. And they're still making that effort and, and attending schools. Last year, the Dallas School Board approved opening the youth center at a former elementary school. The district and various nonprofits are splitting the cost. 
In the spring, the center will open a residential wing with 35 beds for emergency shelter and transitional living. The beds will be for students who are living on the streets, under a bridge, or in a car. Balor says the growing number of students identified as homeless is alarming. But in a city like Dallas, for example, where we celebrate the growth and the、uh, the new buildings that are going up, the skyscrapers, and I think we need to look not only down the street, but maybe you know under bridges and see that these faces are there. For the Texas Standard, I'm Stella Chavez in Dallas. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Texas, being the magnet for growth, it is. Just getting out of the city can be a challenge. But as longtime listeners know, we try to explore what it means to live in rural parts of the Lone Star State, and to an increasing extent, it means going without. Take hospitals. There have been several closures across rural Texas in recent years. When it comes to mental health, good luck finding a psychiatrist. There are miles and miles of Texas in between them, and the gap is growing bigger. But check this out: 35 Texas counties have no physician, zero. 58 counties have no general surgeon, and 147 Texas counties have no obstetrician or gynecologist. All those numbers, according to the Texas A&M Rural and Community Health Institute and the Episcopal Health Foundation. So, what is the prescription? In today's spotlight on health, a new project at Texas A&M which aims to find answers with $10 million in support from Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Dr. Nancy Dickey leads the A&M Rural and Community Health Institute at the Texas A&M Health Science Center. Dr. Dickey, thanks so much for your time. I'm delighted to be here, David. Thank you. We've talked on this program about some of the health challenges facing <clears throat> rural parts of Texas、uh, over the years. What would you consider to be the top problem? What's most concerning to you right now? I think、uh, I'd have to put two up there at the top.、Mm. One is the、uh, capacity to recruit and maintain、uh, providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, and certainly specialty physicians of almost any kind. Is an ongoing challenge and one that we have made little headway on. The second one, and it、uh, contributes to the first, is the continuous pressure on small hospitals to survive in the new、uh, healthcare economics, if you will.、Uh, so we have 164 rural hospitals, but most of them are financially vulnerable、uh, and and daily wonder how long they'll be able to keep their doors open. If you don't have a hospital, your likelihood of recruiting providers drops even further. Well, obviously, you can't fill the gap with this new project per se. So, what is it that you're hoping that this project will do? Is it supporting research, or will it actually help fund some of these uh, uh, clinics or hospitals, or or or, or provide doctors? How, how is this going to work? The funding from Blue Cross Blue Shield is not to.、Uh, Hand a check to small hospitals and keep their doors open, but rather it is much like the moonshot that took、uh, Americans to the moon, saying, "Let's think about things differently. We can't continue to do the same thing and think we're going to have a different outcome. How can we deliver care in rural areas、uh, on a high-quality basis、mm-hmm. and do so?" Even if there's not a hospital in town, how can we use technology to bridge the distances between small towns and 
urban uh, medical center, high-tech kinds of places. I like that now, mental image, the, the moonshot. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I'm wondering, how does this differ from what you're already doing at A&M Rural and Community Health Institute? I think it's what we've been doing on steroids. It's a challenge to us to bring in people that we have worked with a little bit and work with them a lot. So around the table, we'll have business, we'll have agriculture because of the AgriLife Extension Service, we'll have uh, engineering because some of the solutions are li likely to be technology. We even may have uh, architecture to come in and tell us how to better utilize the bricks and mortar that are there in hmm. a fashion that brings a different kind of healthcare to town. That's very interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, you think about how, in some some ways, I suppose, you're going to find some of these challenges in rural parts of America, you know, coast to coast. But I wonder if there are some unique challenges that Texas itself faces. I think Texas's challenge is less unique than it is simply size. We are a big state. We have more people living in rural Texas than many states have in their entire population. Mm -hmm. And we have immense distances. Uh, so you can drive across the breadth and width of some states uh, in less time than it takes for you to drive from one metropolitan area to another in Texas. And so if you're a small town out in West Texas, you may be a couple of hours from the nearest high-tech healthcare. Uh, that's unlikely to happen in smaller states on the East Coast, for example, uh, but it, it impacts three million uh, people who live in Texas. It's important research and it will likely start many conversations. Dr. Nancy Dickey leads the A&M Rural and Community Health Institute at the Texas A&M Health Science Center. Dr. Dickey, thanks again. Thank you, David. We look forward to talking. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Whatever happened to that oil boom? Investors have gone from contemplating the prospect of oil at $100 a barrel, now heading in the direction of sub $50? Not quite there yet, but, well, Bloomberg reports oil prices plunging Tuesday in the sharpest single-day drop since 2015, and that was in the middle of the last oil bust. Analysts say what is so far a 12-day losing streak may not be over. OPEC and its partners talking about cutting supply by as much as 1.4 million barrels a day to prop up prices. But the Houston Chronicle reports oil production in our own Permian Basin is expected to continue to grow in December to nearly 3.7 million barrels a day. No one's talking about a death spiral yet, but since it's such a big part of our economy, it's one of many stories we're keeping a close watch on here at the Texas Standard. Texas Roundup, just around the corner. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver e-commerce and digital solutions designed to elevate customer engagement and revenue for mid-market companies. More at softwareispromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. The State Board of Education will keep Hillary Clinton, Helen Keller, and several other historical figures in the Texas Social Studies curriculum. That decision was made near the end of a 10-hour-long meeting Tuesday. It's a reversal for the board, who had removed them several months ago. But this week, the partisan 15-member body is reviewing and finalizing changes to these curriculum standards. Board member Erica Beltran, a Fort Worth Democrat, proposed adding Clinton back into the curriculum after facing public outcry. I got a ton of calls and emails about the removal of Hillary Clinton um, in this strand, and so my recommendation is to reinsert 
Hillary Clinton. Republican Marty Rowley of Amarillo said he didn't agree with Clinton's politics, but that she should be in the curriculum. The student expectation is to evaluate the contributions of significant political leaders. I have to give credit where credit's due. She is a significant political leader. Clinton, a former first lady, senator, secretary of state, and first female presidential nominee from a major political party, was coincidentally in Austin last night where she was being honored for public service. A rare condition that's been compared to polio continues to puzzle health investigators, and there are several cases here in Texas. Houston Public Media's Davis Land has the latest on the condition. The CDC says they're still not exactly sure what causes acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM, which typically starts out looking like a respiratory infection before patients feel weak in their arms and legs and eventually become paralyzed. They've expanded their scope, looking towards autoimmune diseases as an explanation, but even then, they're not sure. In Texas, they've confirmed a total of 17 cases so far this year. Two of those are in Galveston and Harris counties, two more in Travis County, but many more are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. That's Davis Land reporting. Members of the Texas House heard hours of testimony Tuesday on a number of issues related to the state's foster care system. One of those issues was children aging out of care. These are young people who were not reunited with their families or placed in permanent homes through adoption, for example. Cindy Sparacino is the transitional housing director for the faith-based nonprofit Angel Reach in Conroe near Houston. She offered the House Human Services Committee several suggestions for how to help teenagers transition out of the foster care system. It is imperative that safe and secure living arrangement is secured long before these kids turn 18. A new report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation finds children who are 16 years or older in Texas foster care are more likely to age out of care or be emancipated than their peers nationwide. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at fortlonesome.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. The announcement that minor league baseball was on its way to Amarillo came nearly a year and a half ago. And since then, one question above all others has lingered in the Panhandle City. What would the new club be called? At long last, there is an answer. Though, as the Texas Standard's Michael Marks reports, many wonder if it's a hit or a miss. Before we get to what the name is, let's talk about how we got here. Amarillo's seen minor league ball before. Teams like the Thunderheads, the Gold Sox, the Gassers. But this team, the AA affiliate for the San Diego Padres, will be a new start. Amarilloans voted to publicly finance a new downtown ballpark, and a new name was an order, too. In May, the team announced five finalists. The Long Haulers, the Bronc Busters, the Boot Scooters, the Jerky, and the Sod Poodles. The response? We heard those five finalist names, and there was just a collective groan as somebody read them to us. That's Jason Boyette, a local writer. They were all a little bit hackneyed. They relied more on stereotypes about who we are rather than who we want to be, I think. And, and that, was, that was some of the reasons that people were so upset by them. So upset. That Boyette started an online petition for better names. Over 7,000 people signed it, but the club was clear. The names were the names. There would be no other options. The only thing to do was get on board with at least one of them, and one name rose above the rest. They are the Saab Poodles, Saab Poodles. That's right, they're called the Saab Poodles. Them Saab Poodles, they sure know how to win. 
That song is by Carson Leverett, a local rancher and bootmaker who writes songs on the side. Like a lot of people, Leverett didn't like any of the nickname options at first, but the more he thought about sod poodles, the more it grew on him. Man, I think sod poodles is just rad. You gotta go with it. You gotta go all in and, and just have it be goofy. Supposedly, Sod Poodle is an archaic nickname for a prairie dog, although no one but people with the baseball team seems to have ever heard it before. But it caught on. Levitt wrote his Sod Poodle song, a local Chick-fil-A put up a marquee that read, Chicken Tastes Better Than Sod Poodle. An Amarillo attorney named Dean Boyd started running an ad with a small brown poodle sitting next to a mitt and a batting helmet. You ever been in a car, truck, or motorcycle wreck? You don't need a sod poodle. You just need Dean. But as the sod poodle name gained traction, so too did the pushback against it. People thought it was too weird, too fluffy for Amarillo. Yeah, it created a lot of conflict because people just want us to be called the bombers or something that's kind of stick your chest out, tough guy Amarillo. <laughs> the debate rolled on for months. The Amarillo Globe News published an editorial with the headline, Sod Poodles? Amarillo can do better. And in some businesses, so much controversy might be a bad thing. But not in minor league baseball. It was definitely the most polarizing, you know, the most talked about. The passion for the name Sod Poodles was unlike anything that we had seen before. That's Jason Klein, a partner at San Diego-based Brandios, which helped develop the Amarillo team's branding. Klein's worked with dozens of minor league ball clubs, and his company has a penchant for outlandish names. For example, the Hartford Yard Goats, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, and most recently, the Rocket City Trash Pandas. There's a strategy here. People always ask us, isn't it the worst thing when somebody hates what you create? And we always say, no, the worst thing is if they're apathetic about it. Yesterday afternoon, in a conference room in the Amarillo Embassy Suites, there was little apathy to be found. School kids, city leaders, and season ticket holders had packed in for the big reveal. The team broadcast the announcement over Facebook Live. Over 15,000 people watched. There was a promotional video giving the long haulers, the jerky, the bronc busters, and the boot scooters each their due. But in the end... Sod Poodles was the pick. The main logo is a prairie dog in a cowboy hat, peeking out of the ground with a blade of prairie grass in its mouth. The man who unveiled it was Tony Enzer, the team's president and general manager. Like everyone else, he doesn't fully understand Sod Poodle mania, but there is another brand out there you may have heard of he could compare it to. Obviously on a smaller scale, but you know when you when you hear the the word Starbucks when they when that name was first created, it probably made no sense to anyone. <laughs> what is a Starbucks? After the announcement, there was some grumbling on social media, but it seemed like many people had come around. Even Jason Boyette, the guy who started the petition, said he thought the logo was cool. The songwriter, Carson Leverett, was at the announcement. I called him right afterward to see what the room was like. It looks like everyone is all in. Everyone's excited. So I'm sure there'll be some backlash in the greater Amarillo community, but... I don't know. We're stuck with it. <laughs> For the Texas Standard, I'm Michael Marks. Yeah, they sure know how to win.
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. How about them sock doodles? Hi, I'm Mark Dennis. I'm the writer and director of Time Trap. And I'm Ben Foster. I directed Time Trap with Mark, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. So we're here on UT campus, and this is where we met, and we were just up at the communications building and looking at the classrooms, and we're like, oh man, this is where uh, this is where we had the digital narrative class. And then we walked in, and we we're like, this is where we met. Whenever we had to get paired up, the people that I was friends with in the class, they were like, no, we want to do our own thing. We don't want to. We want to like compete with you. We don't want to work with you. And Ben was like odd man out, as were a couple of other people, and we wound up having to do a short together. And our strengths and weaknesses complement each other, and here we are, ten years later. Yeah, and I think it's a little backwards in, in some ways because our friendship stems from our working relationship, and a lot of kids that get teamed up in college, their working relationship comes from their friendship. We're not the kind of people that, like, in, in real life would meet and be buddies. And then it kind of got to a point where, like, if I had a crisis or something, he's the person that I could call. And now I'm the only person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that having grown up with the same movies and, and having similar tastes has made it easier for us to talk about stuff. Like when we're when we're on set and we have an idea for a shot, we'll be like, all right, let's do the Michael Mann shot for this. Let's have the Scorsese as they walk into it. And because we've seen all the same stuff, we speak the same language. And, and it, it confuses everyone else. I grew up on all the Spielberg adventure movies, the movies with like kids in danger, like E.T., you know, Time Trap is a movie that I feel like has some of those elements. My first uh, rated R movie in a theater, my favorite movie is Terminator 2, and that there's so much of, of that in Time Trap and all the other stuff that we've worked on is because like I think of that movie every single day and like Ben likes it a lot. It's not his favorite movie, but you know, his Back to the Future is a close competitor. Yeah, and we met here on campus both wearing Back to the Future shirts. We didn't know who, who the other person was, we were like, we didn't realize it till years. I think we were working on something. We were talking about how we both had Back to the Future shirts, and, and I was like, wait, we're, or maybe you did. And we were like, were you in Ramirezberg's uh, 314 class? Because we weren't friendly about it. We weren't we were just... wild about one of us having to change immediately. We found each other, though, Mark. Yeah, it worked out. Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. So Time Trap follows a group of kids who go searching for their missing archaeology professor, and they track him all the way out to West Texas, and they go down in this cave, and once they get inside, they start to realize that time passes differently inside of the cave than it does up on the surface. Professor Hopper, are you down there? We shot most of it up in Round Rock in a, in a private cave on some property. We shot out at the Caverns of Sonora, out in Sonora, Texas, up, up I-10. And then we shot a little bit of it in Los Angeles at the Bronson Cave in Hollywood, which is like right underneath the Hollywood sign. They shot the old uh, Adam West Batman series out there. Time is passing differently down here than it is on the surface. It comes out on video on demand, all the iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, all, the, all that stuff, uh, all the cable on demand. I'm Mark Dennis, I'm the writer and Ben's directing partner, life partner. And I'm Ben Foster, I directed Time Trap with Mark, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. Forty-three minutes past the hour. 
Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Seems lots of folks breathing a bit easier now that we've survived another election season intact. Texas is still here, y'all. And though the consensus among analysts suggests Texans are more divided than ever, Texans at odds with each other, you might say, our own commentator W.F. Strong senses something oddly familiar about all this. You hear people all the time claim that if the other political party wins, they'll leave. Nobody much follows through, though, but Davy Crockett did. As he ran for re-election to Congress in Tennessee in 1835, he said that if he won, he would serve the people faithfully, as he always had. But if not, he warned, probably with a smile, they might all go to hell and I will go to Texas. He made good on his promise, too. Within six months of losing, he packed up and headed for Nacogdoches. In the early 1800s, pre-Alamo, many people from the U.S., because of debt or local government, or in pursuit of greener pastures, immigrated to Texas. They left signs on their doors or sent letters to relatives with this abbreviation, GTT. And GTT was just as clear to people then as LOL is in chat speak today. GTT meant gone to Texas. Early Texas was populated by opinionated individuals of strong beliefs and unyielding determination. And this is why the Texas Revolution was no hotbed of harmony, if I can use such an oxymoron to define it. As the idea of revolution evolved in Texas, the first disagreement was in deciding what Texans were fighting for. Were they fighting for a return to full Mexican statehood or for a republic of Texas? Many saw the latter as suicide and argued for just reinstating the Mexican federal constitution of 1824, which Santa Ana had abolished when he came to power. At the first independence convention, called the Consultation, it was decided that the reinstatement of the Constitution of 1824 would be sufficient. They'd get their state's rights back. So they chose a provisional government with Henry Smith as governor and Sam Houston as commander of the army, though there was no real army at the time, just a theoretical one. The council that chose the governor then secretly arranged to send an army, this one of volunteers, to invade Matamoros, Mexico. However, they couldn't decide on who would take charge of this invasion force, so they chose three men to share command. Guess you know how that worked out. And then Governor Smith found out about the secret plan and disbanded the council. But the council said Smith had no such power, and they impeached him. Not a good start. That conflict was resolved four months later at Washington on the Brazos when 60 delegates met on March 1st, 1836, and signed the Texas Declaration of Independence the very next day. They had remarkable resolve. They met, created, and signed the document declaring Texas free all within 24 hours. Fastest government in history. Of course, enemy armies advancing from the South and the West likely inspired their work. Then, at the Alamo, they couldn't decide on a single commander because the volunteers wouldn't submit to Travis's authority, so James Bowie commanded the volunteers and William B. Travis commanded the Army recruits, at least until Bowie became gravely ill, then Travis was the sole commander. All Texas commanders at the time struggled to keep control of their troops. Professor Stephen L. Hardin pointed out, Texians were great fighters but poor soldiers. Independent and insubordinate, they were an officer's nightmare. The Texian volunteer was disorderly, bedraggled, and unprofessional. He did not fight for procedures, politics, or pay. His reason stood over the hearth cooking game he had bagged. 
His reason napped in the crib he had crafted. His reason grew in the fields he had cleared and planted. Because his imperatives were so personal, he zestfully slaughtered any who threatened them. A consummate individualist, he did not want to belong to any establishment, a military establishment most of all. My point in this commentary is that Texans started off as a disorderly, contentious bunch who resisted and bucked against structure at every turn. Argument and disagreement and contentiousness remain within us, but out of this friction has arisen a beautiful and wealthy state, a place that Crockett described in his last known letter written to his children as the garden spot of the world. He said, I do so believe it is a fortune to any man to come here. There is a world of country to settle. That has been an accurate prophecy for many of us. I'm W.F. Strong. These are stories from Texas. Some of them are true. W.F. Strong is a Fulbright scholar and professor of culture and communication at the University of Texas RGV. His stories from Texas are available at texasstandard.org, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Just before Election Day, bloggers said armed supporters of President Donald Trump were headed to the border, mindful of migrants headed that way through Mexico. Was that accurate? Here again to talk through the facts of the matter, Gardner Selby on behalf of the fact-checking PolitiFact Texas Project based at the Austin American Statesman. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. All right, so who exactly made this claim? Well, let me tell you first, Facebook flagged this claim as possibly inaccurate after it appeared on the PatriotJournal.org website. You heard of it? Mm, I'm not sure that I have, to be Well, here's what it says. It says it's dedicated to giving America-loving patriots access to the news. The mainstream media won't Report. Ah, reporting the stories mainstream media won't, won't touch. Okay. So what exactly did PatriotJournal.org declare? On November 5th, the site cited another report about civilian responses to that widely noted migrant caravan. It's several thousand people you know, mostly families from Honduras, presumably poised to seek asylum once they get to the border. They're all walking our way. Mm -hmm. The report said this, that gun-carrying American civilian groups were packing coolers and tents, oiling rifles even tuning up drones huh. with plans to form caravans of their own to trail American troops that have already been dispatched to the border. And this is interesting because I think I saw some pictures of what looked to be sort of civilian militia forces in the, the vests and such. Now, you said there was another report. Did you uh, pin where this information about civilian groups originated? The pinner was fact checker Kira O'Rourke. Now, she mm -hmm. traced most of this to a Washington Post news story. Well, that right there, that's a mainstream uh, news outlet. What, uh, what did the Post say? The Post reported that Shannon McGauley, president of the Texas Minutemen, was preparing to head from the Dallas area toward the Rio Grande to defend the country against what Trump has called an invasion. And Magali told the paper that the Texas Minutemen have 100 volunteers on their way who want to help stop the migrants. Huh. Anything more to this? Separately, the Post reported concern 
among U.S. military officers about unregulated armed militia groups turning up in those very same areas where U.S. troops are already headed or already yeah. planted. Mm-hmm. Now, meantime, Newsweek cited U.S. Army documents it got a hold of, stating there are already 200 such militia members spread along the border, along the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, I, but there's some fudge words here. I mean, the Post reporting concern among U.S. military. Yes. That's a different thing. You know, you can uh, talk about oiling your rifle and, and heading south, uh, but it's another thing to actually do. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. And the Willamette Week, an alternative newspaper in Portland, Oregon, sounded a bit of a skeptical note itself. It pointed out a tweet from an expert on U.S. paramilitary groups that says, reporters should keep in mind that militia members talk tough online, but rarely actually show up. Huh. All right. So how did this claim come out ultimately on the PolitiFact meter? Editors judge it this way. Regardless of how many civilians make it to the border, mm-hmm. it's a fact that plans have been declared. People say they're coming to get, they're going to get there. The editors rated the statement, true. True. Even though we don't, we don't know if they're there yet. I didn't have a vote, David. All right, all right. Now I have a newsy footnote for you. Uh-huh. The Associated Press lately reports that the caravan has reached the northwestern Mexico City, Guadalajara. Most participants are saying they prefer to try to enter the U.S. through Tijuana, which is in Baja, California, not Texas. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting stuff there. Uh, That's uh, Gardner Selby. He represents the PolitiFact Texas fact-finding team, which is based at the Austin American Statesman. Gardner, uh, thanks so much for coming in. Good to see you again. Good to be here. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, now that sound usually means that social media editor Wells Dunbar is in the house. Alas, he is not, but Eric Ossin joins us. He's managing editor at KERA News, and he's been monitoring the talk of Texas on this Wednesday, which is what exactly, Eric? Well, first of all, you mentioned Mr. Dunbar. I believe he's in El Paso. Mm. Um, he's been tweeting some of his adventures, but I've staged my digital social media coup. David. How 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 uh, so? Social media coup is underway because I am here in his place, <laughs> and I took him. I told him go to El Paso, go west, young man. By eat some virtue tacos. of the fact that you just planted your flag, uh, here. And, that's and what the, you're saying. You, you've taken digital it over. overlord has taken over. Right. So watch out. Folks. I know okay. you're fond of that title. So all right. <laughs> All right, so in social media news, a lot of chatter from that item that Becky Fogel reported on a few minutes ago about the social studies standards Uh that um, generating some controversy, the State Board of Education preliminary voting uh, to restore Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller to the state's history curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, emotions ran high yesterday during testimony, particularly when Gabrielle Caldwell, who's 17 years old, a hearing and visually impaired student, spoke before the board about how Keller was the only connection many people have to the deaf and blind community, calling Helen Keller a hero. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Bad Girl Productions says, um, you know, tell everyone who sits on the Board of Education about how partisan politics should not bleed over to women's rights. Hashtag equality. Uh, Chip Crawford says on Twitter, should have never considered removing them, meaning Helen Keller and Hillary Clinton. The message uh, to Texas schoolgirls is you don't matter that much. Um and Kay Clyer says, making Texas ignorant again. So a lot of folks are pleased that uh, the board is reconsidering and going to fold back Clinton and Keller into um, the, the, the standards and the Well, uh, you know, it's it's interesting thing. I, I, uh, the Abilene Reporter News, I don't know if you saw this story. Uh, apparently there was a move to uh, eliminate another aspect from the curriculum, the, the story of the women Air Force Service pilots, the WASP. 
uh, group uh, from World War II. Yeah, I didn't read that article, but I did hear about that as well. Yeah, so, um, well, apparently uh, after 5,500 signatures were uh, sent in uh, via electronic petition, they believe they've saved the uh, the WASPs in the uh, second grade history curriculum. Uh, I think uh, w- one of the officials there at the National WASP World War II Mu- Museum in Sweetwater was saying that they've won the battle, but not quite the war, because I think a final vote on all this is expected on Friday. Hmm. Yeah, yes. Uh, stay tuned to vote from the Board of Education final vote on, on Friday. On, on a much lighter note, the Amarillo Sod Poodles, David, that great story from, from Michael Marks reported just a yeah, few minutes ago. How show. about them Sod Poodles? I love um, Sod Poodles. I think that's an awesome <laughs> name. You're not taking yourself too seriously, right? True, very true. Yeah. I think we schooled people uh, across the state uh, a few minutes ago. Alicia saying on Twitter, how many Texans had to look up what in the world a Sod Poodle is? <laughs> I know I did. Um, Pat Burns tells us at first I thought it was sod puddles it makes about as much sense I guess <laughs> this is very divisive on Twitter you know, on the Twitters right now um, Tom Wharton is cool but what's a sod poodle asking for my labradoodle um, mm-hmm. as Michael Marks reported it's a term for a prairie dog for those yeah. of you who maybe um, missed part of that story um, Friar Girl says on Twitter I was pulling for the Amarillo George Straits uh, <laughs> because of his song Amarillo yeah, sure. by morning of course um, and uh, Mrs. Eek says, hey, Amarillo, we feel your pain. Sincerely, El Paso, home of the Chihuahuas. The Chihuahuas Speaking of El Paso, awesome. Wells Fargo will be back tomorrow. Oh, Wells I, mean, Fargo. I mean, Wells Dunbar. Oh, Wells Dunbar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Wells Dunbar will indeed be back tomorrow. Eric Austin filling in for him from KERA in North Texas. Eric, thanks a bunch. Thank you. We are out of time for the big broadcast, but we're going to be back here tomorrow. We hope you will be, too. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful Wednesday. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare. The Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldrich, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. PRI Public Radio International.